This is Software Engineering Daily. My guest is Yad Faik, a web architect and consultant in the Bay Area. Yad, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Jeff. Same here. This is episode zero of Software Engineering Daily. It's a prologue, and Yad is a perfect guest because he's a full-stack software developer consultant. He has a very good idea of the big picture of modern software engineering. The first week of Software Engineering Daily will focus on JavaScript. Yad is here to give us a context of the past and the present and the future of the web with an eye to how JavaScript fits in. So let's start by talking about web frameworks. History is dominated by monolithic frameworks like Ruby on Rails, Python on Django, and Spring with Java. The future looks more agnostic. Developers can patch together several light frameworks using JSON APIs developed on technologies like ExpressJS. Yad, where are we going with frameworks? That's, uh, that's a very good question. Um, and just um, kind of um, to recap on overall, um, the whole, you know, for the past, I would say, you know, even 10 years, not even just five years, uh, the whole idea of building monolithic apps just, you know, was was the theme um, when Spring kind of was was kind of authored? It came out somewhere around two thousand two. Uh, just the idea of having a group of technologies together and having an MVC and all the other tools together, um, it, it was kind of majestic, majestic for any any web developer. Uh, but then you know, d- due to the necessity of of you know demand of the way the business works and of the other technologies evolving, uh, the other frameworks uh, came to be used more than you know more than spring and more than the other existing solutions and then you know Ruby on Rails if it's Django uh, there's quite a few other number uh, kind of MVCs kicking in uh, but you know just seeing how JavaScript uh, could actually change the way we are building products is just amazing um, so I'm, I'm not you know when I say this, um, I'm not kind of being biased because uh, um, I think I've mentioned this before quite a few times. When you sit down with someone and they ask you, it's like, all right, I need to build this product. Um, what do you think I should be using? So you have to be the least biased when you actually tell them how to build a product. Um, so it kind of, to answer that question, uh, JavaScript have, have kind of evolved uh, not just regarding the programming language. Uh, so you, you, you see that there is CoffeeScript for JavaScript. I mean, that's just the way that you write the, you know, the language. Uh, so that's like an evolution right there. Because um, if you actually think about it, if you were about to write this whole code base in JavaScript, it would be, um, it would be sometimes it would be a nightmare. Because, you know, it has like the C syntax style, all these curly braces. So regarding the syntax, it just has improved. Um, regarding the technology, um, to going back to, to the idea of monolithic, monolithic apps are so hard at some point to do anything with them. I like, you know, to test it, to scale it, to build it. There, there, is, there is a bunch of case studies about it. There, there is, I don't know, like Twitter is one of the best case studies about uh, monolithic apps, you know, dying, uh, not dying, but like just reaching its limits. So with JavaScript, you can build this decoupled system. Um, you know, decoupled, decoupling your technologies. And at some point, you're going to have all these small microservices that are actually serving uh, the purpose your product uh, is working with. Um, there are several companies, I mean, right now, they are literally uh, built 
on pure microservices. Um, I'm, I'm sure there is like you know there is a big component of it, but JavaScript uh, does help really well with that. Um, you know, and with that, it brings us to the you know to the whole topic of like, all right, what I need to do? There is like literally 120 JavaScript frameworks. Um, and it's not just a framework, by the way. You have to choose between the framework. You have to choose between templating system um, and the database. Um, and and there's just like a whole long list of. Uh, it's like almost a dogma that comes after that. How big is the switching cost? If I make, if I choose the wrong JavaScript architecture, and I want to change my templating technology, for example, like if I want to go from Backbone to React JS. How big is the switching cost? Right. Uh, so th- that's actually a really, really um, kind of smart question because a lot of people just like, oh, I'm just gonna decide to switch it. Um, it, it. It really depends on the framework that you use. So you brought up like two examples of Backbone and uh, React JS. So the way that React JS um, is working now, um, it literally builds components on top of whatever you have. So React.js can uh, come to exist in your current solution while you're using a bunch of other frameworks. And, uh, you know, this kind of brings up in the whole essence, like how these frameworks come to exist. So React.js uh, kind of was born and came out of from Facebook. And the way that they're using it um, is um, every now and then they're like, all right, we're going to turn this big component here into React.js, and it's, you know, hopefully, and which, which it is, it's not going to affect our current templating system. And then at some point, you realize that you have, you know, 15 components on the whole web application, and you don't really need any other um, kind of framework to, in the front end uh, to actually take care of that. Um, so, so, yeah, so actually React.js in itself is a very different and interesting, um, you know, okay, so it, the whole idea of building components um, have been uh, kind of, it's like, it's like a myth. It's like, oh, this is just a component, nothing, you know, we don't really need anything else, so we'll take care of it on its own. Uh, there is a group of other frameworks kind of targeting at that. But the way that React is actually working, um, I mean, it, it, it brings the database, the actual logic, the actual front end, all together into, into this very small component that you're going to write in, um, in, in JavaScript, even though they have, you know, they have their own Flux architecture, uh, so-and-so. And by the way, that, um, <laughs> so that in itself, it, it brings you know, other interesting stuff, uh, to be honest. Because all, you know, I think we have kind of brought up this before a few times in bigger discussions. Um, how who comes up with a good architecture for these? Like, um, is it just because someone tried it? I was like, this is good. Um, no, no, really. Uh, so with something like React, they have they have uh, Flux. You know, like follow Flux React. You know, this is the way we think um, you should be doing it. And otherwise, it might turn into anti-pattern. Um, the the reason the learning curve for most of these frameworks are so hard because it's so loose. You can just very easily come up with your own pattern, and most probably that's a wrong pattern. Um, Describe what Flux is. All right, so Flux, um, it, it, if you go to the website, it says Flux Architecture. Uh, they, I, I would say it's exactly a pattern. It's just the way that you're going to be... And just, to, just to clarify for our listeners, if you don't know, React.js is a front-end framework that Facebook has built. Awesome. That's uh, that's that better better than how I explain it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so uh, Flux is application architecture. Uh, it's a f- uh, when when React came out. Um, I mean, all of these are open source projects, um, so it, it needed a direction. It just needs you need to have a way to follow the whole the whole process from from beginning until the very end of how you're going to do this. Um, and it kind of Flux introduces a um, I mean a pattern would not be exactly the right word. Maybe a path. I should I should, I should say a path. It's it's just a path of where you start using your JavaScript. Uh, with the with the React component uh, until when it should follow it. Um, so they um, and this is the other kind of good part of how you know Facebook is introducing or for the folks uh, who actually worked on React is introducing React. It's like all right, this is you know this is videos, this is documentation, this is everything, and that's why we call it you know Flux application architecture. Uh, versus how you want to use, uh, you know, React in your own way. If I'm not mistaken, um, I, I think Spotify, I, I, I might be wrong, but I think there, there's a few other companies that are actually adopting uh, kind of React. Uh, actually, yeah, Airbnb is uh, adopting React in a very good way. Um, and, and they're using, and they're using, they're following their own pattern the way, the way that they should be using it. Um, Wait, because, they're following their own pattern, so they're not following the flux architecture pattern that Facebook is endorsing. Um, I, I might be wrong, but I don't think they do follow that pattern. And here is why: um, it, uh, this is this is not like I've actually noticed from them, but uh, this is the only logical kind of reason it comes to head. Because uh, before React, uh, Airbnb built their own kind of uh, component system, which was called RenderJS. Um, so um, it was it was very good. It was mil- well maintained for a long while, um, and then when React became, you know, it was mature enough. Um, it, so it was it was kind of replaced. Um, RenderJS was replaced by um, what do you call it? By uh, React, um, and so, so see in all of these. It brings up different sides of the technology that you use. Um, it, it, it's not just what it can do for you. It's not just what it can replace. It's just how it sits on on other kind of existing solutions. Um, so, like, I, I can give you a list of I don't know fifteen other frameworks that that could possibly help you to do the same thing. But which one of these are going to sit without complaining on top of a Ruby on Rails backend? Or how, how good it is sitting on, I don't know, just a API, like don't let be any other product. Um, this whole thing just brings up a lot of other kind of components. Um, and, of- and, you know, if, if I were building a new application today, like if I, said, if I sat down today and I could choose between all these different JavaScript front-end frameworks. To me, it seems like, I mean, I could be wrong, but it seems like the safest bet would be React, if for no other reason than Facebook is behind it and they're clearly pouring resources into it. So it's like, and and there's also this implicit path to mobile development using React, but it seems like, it seems like such a, it's sort of like the the one front-end framework framework to rule them all. Um, and so, so do you think that invest investing in React JS right now is it analogous to investing in iOS right after Apple released the iPhone? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, so so to to invest your time and just looking into it, it's definitely worth it. And building, um, you know, products with it because uh, I mean, it has definitely reached the kind of the maturity le- maturity level to actually uh, to use it as a product. Though um, it might not be your answer for uh, building just any product that you want with it. Uh, that's that's one huge problem. Uh, when a technology is good enough um, and when it's open source, the community is going to try so hard to drive it um, into one direction where in reality the actual product was not built for that purpose. Um, and, and that's why I would say, you know, no matter how good React.js is going to be, which it is, um, it's not the answer for uh, building a lot of solutions. Um, and, you know, that's where you kind of turn around and it's like, all right, let me see uh, what are some other open source projects or, oh, you know, what, what are some other JavaScript frameworks uh, that could possibly give me this piece of, you know, solution that I need? That would be, you know, the first thing. Why would I choose a technology? And second of all, um, who's behind this specific technology? Um, are they just building it for fun? Or if it's like a company like Facebook kind of actually uh, feeding into it? Um, and, it, it, you know, these are like measurements uh, that sometimes could be very, very wrong. Because um, you, have, you have something else like Angular that, you know, a year ago that was answered to a lot of things. It was just like, all right, this is too good to be true. Uh, but the, um, the adoption was really fast and, uh, you know, it, it, it came along so quickly and it changed so fast that if you use the framework in January versus July last year, you already were using half of your code base as a de- deprecated system. Um, so this is another side of it that when you choose when you choose a framework, you got to realize like, all right, is the company actually using this, or they just build it and they think it would be cool for other people to use it? Um, and you know, nothing kind of against you know Angular versus React or versus another framework, but that's another important thing. Um, if you're actually willing to invest in it, because well, you you, you made you made an interesting point in a conver- in the uh, the last conversation I had with you, you made an interesting point about an a ideological difference between Google and Facebook, where Google Google they they invented Angular or, or adopted Angular. Author, I, yeah. yeah, the uh, the author worked at Google, as I understand. Yes, so the author, um, they were actually working on, I think, I believe Google Analytics, so they, um, that was like one huge part. They auth- he authored the framework and they, you know, they helped him along uh, then, um, to kind of adopt it. Right, and, and, so, and so, but Google did not, they didn't have a company-wide edict that said, all right, everybody has to use Angular, at least if, if, I, if I recall our conversation yeah. correctly. But, but, yeah. but at Facebook, it's a little more like, okay, company-wide you know, we we're we're trying to push this this front end framework, uh, which I guess has some back end ideology with it as well, and and we want the whole company to be using it uh, as broadly uh, as possible. And and you know, I, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like there has been a sea change from people being excited about Angular and Angular directives to people being excited about React and React components. And it seems like maybe I don't know. Maybe it's it's due to Facebook's going all in with it and saying, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna just dog food this like crazy, and yeah. and we're gonna make it really robust." That's um, 
that's 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 like I mean you you kind of nailed it right there. Um, that's that's one big part of it. I mean, and the thing is, it it's not exactly having to do compare the two company and how they are doing things. It's just how their product works. Uh, I mean, you would Google, you have hundred other products running. They have I don't know. They have like a dozen of other languages and scripting languages they need to manage, and you know the whole company. But with Facebook, uh, they're more uh, they're more driven towards one goal. Uh, they're like, how am going? How am I going to make what I have available onto all these other existing solutions? And how am I going to get there in the most feasible way? So they, uh, you know, they. The framework is just not going to be serving the web. It's going to be serving, you know, many other sites of the actual, you know, web where it could be exposed to. So if I can use it on a tablet, why not make it my, you know, the framework I'm working on to be good enough to be somehow reused there. While uh, the purpose that uh, for a framework like Angular was authored, you know, or like maintained was to manage how, you know, all of those dashboards, all of those little tiny things um, on, on something like Google Analytics or, you know, AdWords have to manage. So so the purpose for both of them are very different. Um, and that's the other kind of misunderstanding of kind of comparing them uh, to be in the same place. They're actually not there to be compared together. They're literally built for almost different purposes. But um, but again, coming back to your point, when you are on the other side point, you're like, all right, I need to build a product right now. What I do, you know, what do I need to choose um, to kind of actually make my product not turn into a graveyard after three months? Uh, so I think that, I think that kind of that. That just brings up a whole check checklist of what do I need to do and what do I what can I do in the next three months. Let's shift to talking about databases. How do you reason about whether a web developer should be using SQL or a NoSQL solution like Mongo? Right. Um, so the you know. SQL is, I mean, having relational databases is just just great. I mean, it just structures your data the way that you want to bring it back. And, you know, uh, there is a long list of things that come with it and it has been used for a long while. Um, but the whole the whole idea that no SQL exists is because that uh, there there is way more data that you can get your hands on that happens to be um, less structured or you don't have an exact, you know, structure for your data, you know. In other words, you don't have an exact schema for it. So, like, exactly, the you know, the killer point that, all right, I'm going to go with something that's NoSQL is where I don't exactly have a good idea of my, you know, you know, of my data structure or of my schema. So that that's like literally right there. It kind of changes between choosing a SQL or SQL. Um, and and regarding the way that you can replicate your data store and just being able to move it along to scale it up, um, Mongo or like actually, you know, most of the other NoSQL existing solutions does help that you know, does help with that a lot. Um, and th- there is this whole sense that, oh, I'm going to be using NoSQL, that means I'll be losing data, or oh, that means I will not actually be able to do, you know, some of the things that 
um, you know, a relational data. Why, why, why would you lose data? Is that because of the eventual consistency? Um, no, it, it, it's it's just because of you know the solutions exist. Some of them are not actually built to have you know seven terabytes of data to be clustered into a bunch of instances. It's just, um, I mean, it has not been thought to be built like that. Some of them are like that. I'm not saying that there are not solutions that uh, cannot store a, a huge amount of data. There are, but um, but when when it comes to massive amount of data, it's just like all right. I need to have more persistency towards it. Um, and again, this kind of brings up a whole kind of debate. It's like, does that mean that NoSQL is not persistent? No, it is persistent, but th- there is very different kind of persistency we're talking about here. Um, and it, it kind of the other thing that it, it kind of brings a limitation to using a NoSQL database is um, writing the um, you know very complicated queries to retrieve back your data. Um, I mean, the good thing is about about you know relational databases, you can very easily not easily. I mean, definitely easier than the way that you work with uh, than NoSQL um, with with uh, you know relational databases. You can write a query and you bring back your information and you know you do a lot of things with it. While if you have a solution like Mongo or like the other NoSQL existing ones. Um, you 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 either need to have a you know ORM or like something on top of it to write an actual script to write a complicated query, or you're limited to some of the existing formats that you can write a query. So it, it's just like you fall you fall into this whole pattern that this is a framework and you can work only inside the framework, you know, nothing out of it. While on the other side with a relational database. Um, uh, you have access to you know unlimited amount of way to leverage the data that you have. So um, I'm not maybe you'll you'll have a good answer to this. Maybe you won't. Um, but so you and I met on Quora, and Quora right. is this social network designed by the first CTO of Facebook. Right. And and um, I love the site not only because it's useful, but the engineering behind the site is bulletproof, and it's really interesting to see how the product evolves um, because the CEO, Adam D'Angelo, understands software architecture so thoroughly. Right. And, and one interesting aspect of Quora is that it uses all MySQL. And I remember reading this somewhere, at least I'm pretty sure, or else I'm imagining it. I, sh- I probably should have fact-checked this before uh, the podcast, but... Do you know if this is true, and why why would Quora choose to use all MySQL? That's, uh, um, I mean, okay, so there, there is a lot of reasons, to be honest. Um, so to kind of to go back to the very, very beginning, uh, so the reason that, you know, they chose to go with Python is because um, to just build, uh, so the, when, when Quora started, uh, just the whole idea of having, you know, no SQL versus um, SQL solutions. It was kind of like a, a little, a little bit too early to make a decision to go with pure No SQL. Um, and for a product um, similar to how Quora works, um, I, I don't really think that using a No SQL solution would be a good idea. So see right there, that that's one issue. Like uh, there is no reason. Um, you would go with NoSQL because um, you definitely have a better idea of your structure. Um, you you definitely know that at some point I'm going to have a lot of data, so I need to have a better query system. Um, and 
and you know when when they so they use Python for for build the whole site from the very beginning, and I think there's a lot of other kind of answers to that. They, you know, they chose Python just because they were they were really good at it. They're like, I'm really good at this, so I'm going to be using this to build a robust product. And I guess that's why you just have a very good structure. Um, and that's where it actually brings up that if you're a good engineer or you're just the engineer that follows the hype. Um, so they um, using MySQL in that scenario. Um, Bring you know brings up a lot of interesting stuff. So MySQL could easy, very easily get integrated to you know the existing you know web server that you have back then. Um, and back then there was no a robust solution like Mongo that can do. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was Mongo, but I'm so sure that Mongo or like the other existing NoSQL solutions were not as robust um, as it could be used in production. Um, and to change your whole stack or you know something like database later on is a very tricky thing, and it's 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 just a bad practice. Um, it's never recommended to kind of do it. And so, from and from a product perspective, the thing that they were trying to offer was this is going to be like all the other question and answer sites, except it's actually going to work. And so, so in that sense. You're right because the schema was really well defined. You know what do you what what are the aspects of a question that you need to keep? Well, you need to keep the answers associated with it. You need to keep the topics associated with it. You need to keep the users that are following it. Um, and how do you describe the schema of a user? Well, it's, he's got a name. He's got a he's got a birthday. He's got a, or maybe you're just it's a pointer to to his Facebook profile or whatever. But in right. any event, this is not like an, these are not abstract complex data types that are, you know, it's not like this is some brand new uh, environment. Um, you know, this is sort of a, a this is, a, this is a, t- a type of product that's been built before. So, so the schema is, it's not that the schema will never change. Obviously, the schema will change. But, you know, um, if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, much of the advantage to going with a NoSQL solution is you can make aggressive schema changes and the entire paradigm of your development has the feature of, um, you know, it, whenever whenever I I load this uh, this this um, this right. NoSQL document, this right. this uh, JSON document, if it doesn't have a field that that I have added in the you know uh, more recently, like if the schema, if I get if I get a doc a, a document that's kind of old and doesn't have the same schema as what I'm used to, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That 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 that's exactly the answer. Um, otherwise, you have to do data migration every now and then, um, and data migration. Oh boy, it's a it's a heavy thing to do because. Yeah, it just it's it needs a lot of but but exactly that's the answer. Um, if if you're not using you NoSQL and if you're doing that kind of importing data or if you're doing um, aggressive change, uh, the answer to that on a relational database is just you know do migration uh, or you know um, and when I say migration, I literally uh, you know right now with something with Ruby on Rails, migration means something else. But data migration back then, I guess, was literally dumping the data into somewhere and coming up with a new schema and importing the database back in, which is you know it's a heavy thing to do. It's not just like a weekly 
uh, kind of technical debt that you decide to do. So yeah, it uh, exactly. That's, and so, uh, so so speaking of speaking of types of migrations, let's talk about a different a different type of migration. Um, so you, you sent me another you sent me a link to a talk that was given by an engineer at Uber, and I'll, uh, in the show notes, I'll include a link to that that video that you sent me. So the this Uber engineer was talking about Uber's original architecture. And the original architecture of Uber was a LAMP stack built around PHP and MySQL. And then so they built a new architecture so that they could move off of PHP. Their new architecture maintained GPS logs and dispatch state in MongoDB. But Uber also kept a persistent MySQL store for business logic. Even after they made this migration to having some some Mongo... um, and so the, the engineer did not say what was in this, quote, business logic database. But the reason that they have this polyglot persistence was because the MySQL database was left over from the LAMP architecture. And it didn't actually make much of a difference if this business logic database was in MySQL or if it was in Mongo. And so the engineer giving the talk expressed that they could have moved the MySQL database to Mongo. It wouldn't have been a big deal, but they already had some 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 logic in place that dealt with the MySQL database. So maybe to put a finer point on the previous conversation that we just had about Quora, could you explain some reasons why Uber may have been ambivalent about whether this business logic data was in MySQL or NoSQL? Like, when are the times where it just doesn't really matter? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so I, I, guess, I guess one of those times that actually doesn't really matter is that um, if your alternative is not going to really give you any extra advantage point and, and it, you know, like you have almost the ease of migrating your data very easily to a um, an alternative solution um, with you know with the least amount of cost and and it doesn't really it, it wouldn't really change the thing that you're doing um, and actually I, if I'm if I'm not mistaken I think he's the VP of engineering that gives the talk and he says you know something actually in the talk that um, like their their business logic wouldn't have become you know 10x better if they have actually moved to a NoSQL solution. Um, so if, if that, if that happens, if that's, you know, if that would help you, then definitely, you know, migrate it. Uh, but I guess the only time that it would not actually matter which solution you choose is that, um, if, if the, you know, the alternative approach would not actually give you an, you know, advantage point from the current way that you're pursuing it, um, you know, the same thing goes to a lot of other things, not just that. Um, you know, it goes to real time. It goes to, you know, I don't know. There's like a hundred other ways of things. So I guess that's that's one logical answer. Um, if uh, the alternative way does not actually give you any advantage, then, you know, the question is like, why? Why would I should do it? Um, okay. So and th- another point that they made in the talk was, they they switched part of their system to Node.js because this there was this dispatch system that they have. So whenever a customer makes a request to get a car, it right. the request hits this dispatch logic where 
the you know they decide you know Uber decides what like you know what drivers to forward that request to, um, and so so in this talk they said that originally in the original PHP architecture Uber was multi-threaded and there was a potential problem where a customer requests a car and that request ends up going to multiple drivers and multiple drivers would come to pick up, would come to try to pick up that customer and so if I understand correctly. This was one of their motivations to move to Node.js because there there was a single, you know, if you move to Node.js, there's a single threaded event loop and it becomes easier to manage requests in a way that does not produce conflicts. So do I, do I understand this correctly? Yes. Um, yeah. I, I mean, so I, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure about the double kind of the double booking thing about the other side of the endpoint, but I can tell you from the other side when you're actually requesting uh, just just the idea of having the request um, request being sent to you know the server you know all that process so it's not just the uh, the customer doing the request there's a lot of other kind of sorts of requests um, with with a non blocking kind of or like just going with you know using Node.js for that kind of problem um, is is almost perfect you know, it's almost too good to be true because it gives you the power of you know of the other existing pieces in, in the whole technology in the whole picture, and it reduces the amount of CPU or the amount of actually processing that you need to happen in the computer. Uh, otherwise, um, you really need to have huge computers, huge processing power to get all these requests and you know keep them open or keep them you know ping ping back to them. Um, so it, I, I don't exactly know how PHP have evolved in that way, but for for some other you know some other frameworks like Django or, or like Ruby on Rails, like Ruby on Rails, they have something called Event Machine, um, and it kind of it, you have to do a lot of work just to give that solution to have requests being sent to and the request having some sort of long polling or like some sort of way to, you know, it's to kind of replicate that whole dispatcher thing. But with, with, with Node.js, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons the whole thing has come to existence. So, um, and using it for a product like that, it would just make a lot of sense. So that, that is why they kind of moved on to, to kind of use Node.js to kind of serve that side of the product. Um, what, and, what, and, what? What is your understanding of the Node.js event loop? How does it work? Okay, so so the to kind of to to kind of explain that we kind of just have to talk about a few other things. So it's not just the um, the Node.js event loop. Um, we kind of have to. There's like a whole diagram about it because for a programmer that comes from. Um, um, for a programmer that comes from you know normal OOP and the, the way their stack works, it's it just kind of like I said, it's a whole different mentality. For, for me, at the beginning, to just understand that I had to go through, I don't know, like a lot of things because I I come from a C sharp and just like that background is very different. Okay, so it works in this way. So imagine that um, you have a bunch of clients sending you know sending all these requests and the uh, Request turns into a um, it, it turns into a queue. So all the requests that comes in, it turns it, it's going to be named as an event, and it turns into an event queue. And then the event queue every time. So so if you have the picture on you know on some site, 
you have this stack of cues all coming up. And, and I know I know the picture that you're referring to, by the way, and I, I'm going to include it in the show notes. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. that would be awesome. Yes, <laughs> because right now I was just like pointing my fingers everywhere. Like, <laughs> like, uh, so you have you have this kind of event queue somewhere, uh, and this whole thing gets stacked up. And instead of at once all of them to be sent into the you know to the to the thread that you have in your backend, um, it goes through this event loop, and the event loop creates its own kind of it kind of manages the way that you lock, um, you kind of open up the lock, you do, you know, a lot of other things. It kind of manages that for you. So the event loop will eventually take each event and send it to, you know, to the rest of the processing side that you have. You know, whatever the, whatever the, and I, if I'm not mistaken, the, the terminology is like thread pool. So it sends it to the thread pool and, and in the thread pool you have, all these other existing pieces that is just waiting for the request to come in. So technically the event loop just takes a whole kind of layer, or actually I would say a bunch of layers all together and it manages that for you. And and for you as a web developer or as a developer, you don't really need to understand that part. And and I you know I, I think it's a good good way to I I I don't want to say I don't want to be Speaking for a lot of people, but I would say engineers that could be it would be so hard to manage that on your own to create your own version of the event loop or something like that that would mimic it. Uh, but the event loop technically just it, it manages your requests coming in in a in a very very you know nicely manner. Um, so the be- okay, so a better way to explain this, I would say. Um, so imagine if you if you had a product like Uber um, and and you know. At one second, there is like fifteen customers. You know, fifty. I would say just not fifteen. Fifty customers sending requests to a driver um, on the same existing node that you have. And when I say node, it's the server that you send a request to. Um, if you don't have something like an event loop that would manage all these requests and each of them to be sent to different services in the backend, it just it just goes nuts. Because it's it's the, all the requests are different. Some of them are going to be for requesting payment info. Some of them are for requesting. So all of them are requests, but e- each of them are the requests for different sides of the service. So um, the event loop definitely takes takes care of that in a very um, nicely manner. Um, I I don't want to say that it kind of makes you lazier to think about how the whole product uh, works, but it definitely. Um, kind of avoids to make a horrible mistake to kind of manage that whole architecture. Um, and that's why it's just kind of brilliant uh, taking care of that. And by so the way... I, oh, yeah, go ahead. So, oh, go ahead. So, so, so I kind of skipped out a lot of things. But uh, so the, the event loop, it, ju- it, it doesn't just do that. It kind of um, it talks back to the, you know, to the V8 agent that you have, the V8 uh, JavaScript engine, and the V8 kind of... There is another layer that will manage it for you, and then it will go back to the application app. And then you have, you know, a, that's why it comes up. You know, data binding comes in. Um, there, there's like there's a whole bigger side of it, but it's kind of the beauty of the whole thing is that it actually takes care of a lot of things for you, and you don't really need to understand that part of it. So I think what seems kind of weird about the event loop, especially, you know, you said you come from a C-sharp world, I come from a Java world. What seems weird to me is 
The event loop seems like this single point of serialization where you've got all these requests coming in, and it seems like you could just have this uh, just this huge backlog of requests that develops where the event loop can't process requests fast enough to keep it up, and it seems like this this bottleneck, this single point of failure. Um, That's yeah. So so is so is yeah. that is is that accurate or what like what yeah. am I what so, am I misunderstanding no. about about um, the situation? No, that's uh, so that's actually correct, and it 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 brings up so okay so it solves a problem like it does solve a problem like instead of having all your requests wait um, and having you know all of them pinging you at the same time and your threads just it spawns a hundred thread um, instead of doing that it it actually does take care of it. But at the same time, you have this thing, you know, I, I think they, they refer to it as callback from hell. You know, I think it's something like that. You get to have all these callbacks, just you have, like a mess. And then the callbacks get queued in the back of the event queue, right? Yeah, because they're, in return, it's, it's in the same way you have another, another queue to be sent, sent back out because um, this whole thing is a single thread and the single thread kind of manages to send back all the requests. Um, and if you if you're someone like an engineer to sit down like all right I'm going to think about how am I going to create a to do list you know I think to do list is like one on one for all these products to use it uh, your callback is pretty much a checkpoint and a data information but if you're building a, a a bigger product if you're building something in our architecture like Uber the callbacks are going to be massive you're going to have all these callbacks for different things. I, and I, I, that is why when you for, enforce too much into technology, it just becomes, you know, anti-pattern. You're just actually using it for the wrong reason. Um, and, you know, so, so using Node.js is pretty good for that first part we talked about. But when you reach a level of that scale, it's just a bad idea to go with it because, you know, it's not just the callbacks. There is a lot of other things, by the way. There's, you know, there's going to be a lot of performance issues. There's, um, there, there's just like a long list of those. Um, so, so this seems like, like a good opportunity to, to jump into the microservices discussion because um, as, as I understand, the, the way that you, that you design a microservices architecture on, on, these, uh, on Node.js uh, Node.js microservices is you've got like like let's say you know for, for Uber's purposes you know maybe they've got um, a couple instances of the same type of Node.js application that basically just routes requests like maybe you've you've got a, you've got requests coming into the to the Node.js uh, routing event loop and and uh, that that event loop um, set you know if you've got if you get a request for payments. Oh, you go over to this other microservice. If you get a request for uh, for to dispatch a, a cab, you go over here to this other microservice. And on each of these microservices, you have another Node.js single-threaded event loop. So, um, is is that an accurate picture of 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 microservices on Node? Um. So, so okay. So actually, microservices is an answer to a lot of questions. Like I, I just I love the idea that you know you can you can do that. Um. But um. I would say so. So in here, this is kind of a bigger kind of. This is a higher level than actual including uh, the kind of Node.js event loop. This is a this is a point where you actually can totally replace Node.js by another technology to become a microservice to take care of that for you. Um, like uh, there is like hundred other practices for microservices, 
but the good thing about the microservice is that at some you know at some point Node.js or like their their event loop just doesn't answer your question. You're gonna decide to use a different framework, a different backend to take care of that for you. Um, you know there are there are still things that you know Ruby on Rails does it really well. At some point, you might actually decide to take care of one of your APIs to have you know Ruby on Rails to do for you or like whatever. So right now, you know Erlang like they they have some web framework. I think it's called Cowboy, um, and it does a lot of things actually really well. Um, you can have one of the bigger components of your microservice to have something like Erlang to take care of for you. Um, and the way that the process gets routed um, is just based on requests. Um, you, you have one big application, or I would say just one routing application, where it will literally be routing the requests to different services. Uh, right, okay. So, so the initial explanation that I gave of microservices uh, is sort of like, yeah, sure, you could do it that way, but it's like that's 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 taking Node.js as a hammer and seeing everything as a nail. Um, that's a that's an interesting analogy. Um, yeah, because I, because it's like you know the what I originally said in my in my long winded excited example was you know oh you you <laughs> might might as well use Node.js for everything, but but you know you you brought up the point of you know cowboy this Erlang message passing framework like if you're going to be passing messages uh from one API to another why would you why would you use Node.js as your as your messaging message dispatch layer like you might as well use use Erlang exactly um it, it, that that exactly i mean you, you don't really need to i mean you don't really need to use you know one solution for all of them and and that kind of that that makes things you can I mean you can make mistakes and you would still not be too costly. Because if you think about it, if you actually chose the wrong way to manage your routing or you chose the wrong technology to do one of your microservices, um, you still have not caused like this huge mess. So, so you, you're just kind of you made one wrong decision and they're gonna go back and change the microservice. And that uh, and that's why um, I would say it helps a lot. Um, turning your whole architecture into a, a, a group of microservices, and, and actually, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and, and the whole thing about microservices is not just the fr- on the framework level, uh, because uh, you know having multi-tenant applications is another whole kind of kind of cluster mess on the other side of it. Uh, when you when you go with the microservices, you kind of somehow uh, mitigate that risk of taking care of multi-tenancy or like actually having each service relate to their own databases as well. So there's a few other things that comes with it as well. Yeah. And so, um, I, sh- I should have, I should have brought this up at the beginning of the, of the jump into discussion about microservices, but how, you know, particularly for our, for our listeners who don't know, what is your definition of a microservice? Right. Um, so a microservice is technically a service, a web service that can manage on its own, but at the same time, it doesn't serve, um, as a standalone application. Uh, so if, if it actually became a standalone application, then you are not doing a microservice, a microservice, uh, you know, I, to my, to my understanding, to actually the way that I am doing it right now is, is a service that can function only for one purpose uh, towards a bigger solution. Um, and that way, 
it just becomes lightweight. You are not spending too much time around it. And at the same time, you're kind of balancing out your loading regarding your processing, regarding your data and everything else. So that's how um, kind of the microservice comes to, you know, become a part of your product. Um, otherwise, um, you know who actually gives a really good talk about microservices? Um, I, I, sh- I should have sent you this. Um, um, Adrian Croft. Uh, Croft I, I Adrian Croft. Yes, exactly. Him. Um, he, um, he was, I think, the cloud architect at Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. And he has a really great talk about the microservices. Um, and uh, that, like, I watched that talk a few years ago. It, it, there's like different versions of the talk. I watched that talk. I was like, wow, this is how a microservice should be, not the way I'm doing it. Because I saw a lot of solutions with literally a bunch of APIs just talking to, to each other. And each API was technically a web application on its own. I was like, this doesn't look like a microservice. I think this is how a microservice should be. And you, you actually brought it up really well. Like, you have a service just to do all your payment sites. Like, it take care, takes care of the business logic, you know, all this and all that. And that's the only purpose of this product. Like, it doesn't do anything else. Like, believe it or not, it doesn't even do um, authentication authorization for you. Like, it literally does that. But the only way to access it, you have to go through another microservice that only takes care of your um, kind of your, your authentication and all that. You know, actually, Amazon Web Services, um, it's somehow a bigger version of microservices. Like, they have this whole technology called IAM, uh, which is, I think it starts for um, something access key management, like IAM, it's literally a whole service that just has been built to take care of your, you know, your SSH keys, your server keys, and all this. And that's like a good way to explain how a microservice does. Like that service doesn't do anything else. It just serves managing your keys. And in that way, you're not putting too much uh, force. You're not making it heavy. Um, and at some point, a new great technology comes out. I was like, you know what? I think we should replace the way that we are dealing with real time. They're like, all right, let's see what we need to change. And at that point, you're going to need the least amount of uh, time to change that side of the whole thing. Is there a difference between what people used to call service-oriented architecture and the current discussion of microservices? Um, the there, there absolutely is, um, it, you know, there is a difference between, and there is not just a difference between the, the way the two approaches, there is a difference in the whole uh, kind of definition of it as well. Uh, the service-oriented architecture was more towards, um, um, it, it was literally towards, it was the example that I gave you before, you literally have a group of um, API apps uh, that can work on their own, um, and at the same time, they could be um, kind of bringing back, retrieving back information to a bigger product. Um, and service-oriented um, architecture, I mean, um, it's kind of ambiguous to give you an example because it could very easily fall in. There's, like, there's not a fine line in between it. Uh, but the whole reason we uh, kind of right now it's moving to microservices just because uh, you really want your whole system to be decoupled. You don't really, like, you don't want to tie, um, you know, all these kind of technologies together. And the microservice is literally a microservice. And the 
okay. So, so if if we make a table, literally, if we do make it make a table on the on the service oriented architecture, you have all these existing solutions, and each of them is going to be um, working as their own product. On the other side of the table, when we have microservices, all of them together can be working as just one of the ones on the other side of the table. Like the payment system could literally be broken down into a bunch of microservices. Um, so, you, so you're saying uh, a a quote-unquote service in service-oriented architecture would be this service that accepts all these different types of of uh, of requests, like all these different API requests, like you know, get payment information with these parameters, or get get uh, you know, give me give me a Uber driver uh, or an Uber driver's profile request. Like it would be this one application. Um, where you know you 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 make a you make a you make a, a different request to the same server the same port, um, but it's it's just a different request and so that's the model for the for the service service oriented architecture. Whereas with a microservice, you have these services that are um, strictly strictly partitioned to uh, to 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 a smaller geographic uh, space. Is, is is that right? That's uh, that's correct. Um, it, it, I think it, yes, that's correct. Um, the other thing to bring up is that uh, the reason you go with a microservice because you can be technology agnostic, you can be programming language agnostic, you can go with whatever you know. So, because the microservices all together will be one service, um, right? And, and and we've sort of converged on. The common language, and this this circles back to the discussion of why is everything moving in the, in the direction of JavaScript. You know, the the common language between these microservice APIs is is JSON. Right, uh, right. So, I mean, you need to have some sort of like standardized formatting, otherwise, um, it will be just pretty bad. I mean, um, back then, I remember I used to um, I used to create like web services. Uh, Using things like Wisdle, WSDL, like things like that, and they would all have like XML. And XML, right? I was like, oh my god, this is what's happening! Like, this is no way I could understand this. Uh, just writing a script to kind of de, uh, kind of decompose that. So yeah, um, having a standardized uh, formatting um, for all these data to be managed is is absolutely great, and I think you know. JSON have answered that in a lot of ways, um, even though they're, you know, so to make every technology understand formatting, you definitely have to kind of dump down your formatting. Otherwise, it will become something, you know, right now, you know, HTML5 and all these frameworks, it's like, oh, we're going to be making HTML5 smarter. It's like, well, it's, I mean, they could have made it smarter, but the thing is, we don't really want that because the other technology is not going to understand it. So yeah, JSON is the kind of the formal language between a lot of these. Um, you know, even the database kind of spits back the actual JSON format to you. So um, I think it's more like a blessing um, with that one. I, I wish I wish it was like that for a lot of other technologies, <laughs> but uh, sadly it's not. Um. So I want to I want to close off. We got about five minutes left, and I want to just ask you a quick question. This is totally going to open up a can of worms. But maybe the the uh, the five minutes will be like a forcing function on you giving like a really elegant explanation. How does Docker fit into the microservices world? Okay, um, 
I, I love it. This is a good ending of the whole talk. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope I have not made anyone angry with my previous statement, so I'm going to make it up in this one. No, no, no. It's, it's good because anger drives traffic. Uh, I hope not. Um, okay, so, okay, so, the, so the whole idea of containers is how you're going to be creating uh, you know, virtualized um, environments anywhere, not just you know, not just on your computer, not just anywhere else. Uh, you, you're going to have these containers that literally is a visualized environment with a lot of other existing things that comes with it. Uh, before Docker, they were Vagrant, and there was a few, others, a few other ways to actually create you know, a visualized environment. But the, you know, the great thing about Docker is that it just doesn't, it's not just a visualization um, it offers a lot of other endpoints, um, a lot of other ways just to um, deliver, just to move your kind of containers to other places. So I would say Docker is literally an, a, a very elegant way to take care of your kind of visualized environments and move it around. Um, I mean, with Vagrant, you know, having Vagrant like some of the other visualized ways, you have to do a lot of installation, a lot of other setups. With Docker, you create a Docker container and you go in there. It's almost a you know Unix system on its own, um, and you can pretty much put that Docker uh, container all, almost everywhere else. And the cool thing is that it has built in a way that could very easily be migrated. To into and out to the whole thing, um, while the other existing solutions was not exactly serving in that way, and it was not exactly making use of you know the virtualization in a very um, you know in, in a very in a very nicely manner. Um, and the thing so is, so it's like you can you can cram you can cram more Docker microservices onto a single server than you could do with Vagrant or just with straight-up virtualization. Yes. So that, that was a really good point you brought up. Because Docker actually, it's like virtual environment. It's not actually a virtual machine. Um, so like it, it, it offers, you know, the virtual environment for you, what you can do, I don't know, you can do a, a limitless things with it, right? Um, but the thing is, um, there is, you know, because Docker is new, there's always limitations to it as well. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't work on every kind of operating system. Um, it doesn't, I, I don't know, there's like a lot of, a lot of things, but the Docker serves, uh, serves like this, you know, it, the Docker solution gives you this kind of uh, virtual environment that mostly, I think, Linux only, it is Linux only, and it kind of spins up in, you know, in a few seconds, instead of taking you know minutes, it doesn't take you know that long time, and at the same time, it's very lightweight. Um, it, while you know the other, the, I'm not saying like the others are actually bad, but the others is like overkill for something like that. So, so would you just said it? A Docker could just be take only one microservice and spin it up somewhere else, um, and I think. And the le- and the learning curve as well. Like for me, I literally like I learned Docker about I think a week. Um, and, uh, one week we had to we had to uh, when I was working at my previous job, we were work- building a streaming service, a video streaming service. I was like, what could help us? You know, make all these things and you know, 
replicate it 20 times. Um, and literally, I was Googling. It was like, oh, wait, what is this? What is this Docker thing? Um, and it, it serves really well, like I said, you know, just to make sure that that, that convert that because those two are very different things, uh, having a virtual machine versus an environment. Um, and so, yeah, it just serves for that, you know, serves for that purpose of the microservice really well, like you said. Um, and I guess that's why right now, if you see, you know, you know, I always make a joke about it. I was like, when I walk up on Fourth Fourth in town, when I walk up on Fourth Street, up to Mission, um, I see everyone wearing a Docker shirt. I, I tweet about it usually, um, <laughs> but but it it really it really like it really serves the purpose of the way that right now the technology is evolving, um, and the other existing solutions serves what you know the other things need to be, um, but um, but yeah, so um, I I think. I, I hope I have not. <laughs> I hope I hope that doesn't sound too biased, and I hope that doesn't actually is like because I'm sure there is a lot more about these technologies we talked about. No, uh, absolutely, but I, but, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, but for someone, okay. So for someone like you know, if we do like a really quick recap of you know for the very 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 beginning, for someone who's the first time they hear about building um, components kind of architecture, I would say, you know, following something like Flux architecture could very easily help you uh, use, make the best use of React without doing any mistake. Um, and then if you're, you know, if you're at that point where you try to choose between NoSQL and SQL, um, if you, if you, you know, if you had some idea of what your data structure looks like, and if you think that you're not going to be a major change, then you should go with the relational database. Um, if not, then go with a, you know, a NoSQL. And and I would say the the quite mostly used is the Mongo and Mongoose. You know, those the MongoDB, you know, the solution, the drivers that exist. Um, and what else we talked about? Um, oh, and and. <laughs> And about Node.js, uh, it's great. I, I love it, but I don't think again uh, for someone who have not ever used JavaScript in backend and in frontend, uh, it's brilliant. But it might not answer all your questions. Make sure, <laughs> make sure you're not gonna fall into the whole. Um, there's like a vortex. Uh, there's like a vortex you've fallen into. It's like, <laughs> my God, I can do everything with this. Uh, um, and you know, lastly, regarding the the. The virtualization, uh, doc- Docker could very easily help the purpose of using the microservices. It actually can help with a lot of other things as well. But again, it's a virtual environment, and um, and yeah, um, I hope I That's did great. not. I think. <laughs> yeah this this has been this has been fantastic. I think this is a really good first episode, and um, we'll definitely have to have to have you have you back on because you're you're extremely good at explaining stuff. So. Uh, Yad, Yad Faik, thank you so much for coming on the inaugural episode of Software Engineering Daily. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hopefully next time I'm going to be talking about machine learning. That's what I'm <laughs> Sure. Sure. We totally should. We totally should. <laughs>